Welcome to Little Known History of Sydney. I'm Ilana Penderose. And I'm Dr Robert Jones. With the centenary of Anzac behind us and the Sydney Writers' Festival next weekend, we wanted to talk about poet and war correspondent Kenneth Slesser. Dr Jones, although he spent most of his life in Sydney and is closely associated with that city, Slesser was actually born in Orange. Yes, when one considers the work of Slesser, it quickly becomes apparent that he was a city dweller and proud of it. He spent most of his life, of course, in Sydney, in North Sydney, Chatswood, and in Elizabeth Bay by the harbour, but he was actually born in regional New South Wales, in Orange. Coincidentally, uh, it's the same region where Banjo-Patterson had been born decades earlier, and yet you couldn't really find a different sort of poet in Slesser. Patterson, of course, had spent a large part of his childhood in the country, but Slesser's family moved to Sydney two years after Kenneth was born in 1901. His father, Robert, was a mining engineer of German-Jewish descent, and his mother, Margaret, was an Australian-born with Scottish roots. What little we know about his childhood suggests that he was fairly privileged. His father, despite being a miner by trade, was actually very well read, and I think it was his appreciation of European culture, music, art, literature that really inspired Kenneth's love of verse from an early age. There's even evidence to suggest that he spoke French, although I don't think he retained any trace of his ancestral German, interestingly enough, especially once war broke out in 1914. Australia, like many countries, had nothing against Germany before the war. There was a thriving German immigrant community here, many of them artists and intellectuals, who were willingly accepted into broader Australian society for years. But with the outbreak of war between Britain and Germany in August 1914, this all changed, and suddenly anyone with a German name, accent, products, is singled out as public enemy number one. Slesser, who had actually been born Kenneth Adolf Schlesser, was certainly not immune to this, and I think it speaks volumes about the sense of shame, perhaps, that his family must have felt, that whilst he was being educated in Sydney, they alter their surname to Slesser. Uh, Australia might well have been on another planet to Germany during this period, but we certainly did our best to make many Germans feel very unwelcome during this period. Now, Kenneth Slesser's passion for poetry and writing took a while to develop. He originally attended Mowbray House School in Chatswood in 1910, which turned out someone that our listeners might recognise. Yes, well, as well as turning out one of the country's most respected poets, Mowbray House was also responsible for producing one of the most lauded politicians, a Mr Edward Gough Whitlam, no less, who attended some years after Slesser before transferring to Knox Grammar School. Slesser attended Mowbray between 1910 and 1914, before continuing on to Shaw, and it's here that his career as a poet really begins. In 1917, we get his first published poem in the form of a dramatic monologue spoken by an Anzac soldier fighting in France. And, I mean, primitive though it was, there are a number of themes in this piece that one can find scattered throughout his work uh, throughout the years. Uh, Firstly, Slesser spent a great deal of time writing on or for the Australian military. He wrote and edited a magazine-style newspaper called Smith's Weekly during the 1920s and 30s, which was predominantly aimed at an ex-serviceman readership. He served as Australia's official war correspondent during the Second World War, of course, and one of his last and, I think, most important poems, Beach Burial, published in 1944, represented somewhat of a sombre reflection on the sacrifices made by Australian soldiers fighting in the North African desert in 1942. The Anzac in Slesser's earliest poem of 1917 reminisces quite fondly about Sydney Harbour and Manly Beach, and it's these Sydney-side icons which form the other great cornerstone of his creative work. 
confirming his relationship with this podcast, I think. Uh, Sydney Harbour in particular featured regularly in the copy he produced in his day-to-day job as a journalist, especially once he moved to the harbourside suburb of Elizabeth Bay in the 1940s. So close was Slessor to the water that it was said that he could lower a bucket from his flat in Billiard Avenue directly down to the Italian fisherman sailing by and bring up a fresh catch of fish. Let's talk quickly about Slessor's career as a journalist. He was a bit of a social paradox. His outward demeanour and beliefs, his privileged upbringing, didn't quite align with what he wrote about as a journalist. Yes, well, as I say, Slessor's upbringing was fairly privileged. There's certainly nothing to suggest his family were financially strained, uh, especially one considers the prestigiousness of his education, for example. Uh, from what one reads of his journalistic output in the 1920s, when he first started working for the Sydney Sun newspaper, he was a big advocate of empire, for example. His appearance, his European cultural sensibilities, fondness for opera, and the arts all suggest an individual that was fairly refined and conservative. It's perhaps this side to Slessor, I think, that the historian John Docker caused him to label him and his friend Norman Lindsay as being members of a literary aristocracy in Sydney. But um, this is somewhat of a misleading assessment. Anyone who knew Slessor would have said that he was a bohemian, not an aristocrat. His poetry during the 1920s might have been somewhat flowery, somewhat romantic in its tone, drawing as it did from the fantasy of the Greek myths and a kind of medieval adventurism, I suppose. But this quickly evolved into the work we're all now familiar with, the work that drew upon real-world experiences and the realities of everyday life. In all his years as a journalist, Slessor only ever worked for what we might call popular newspapers. The Sydney Sun, the Melbourne Herald, the Daily Telegraph. He was a great lover of satire, especially in the vein of one of his literary heroes, Charles Dickens. And I don't think he ever really missed an opportunity to take a swipe at politicians if he thought they'd bumbled. It's perhaps a sign of how sparsely populated a world the poetic scene in Australia was at this time, I think, that many of his closest friends were cartoonists and visual artists, whom he would be seen mingling with at his favourite watering holes in King's Cross. Now, I must clarify, the Cross was a very different place in these days, far more of a bohemian stomping ground, perhaps. Perhaps in the same way as we regard somewhere like Oxford Street or Newtown today. It was where you wanted to be if you were an up-and-coming artist in Sydney, and it's where one will find Slessor in his time off. He was fascinated by people, a very kind individual from what I can see, and certainly not a conservative by any means. Let's talk about one of these newspapers that he worked for back in 1927. He was hired by the Smiths Weekly, and Slessor called this the happiest chapter in his existence. Yes, Slessor's heyday as both a poet and a journalist was really the period between 1927 and 1940 when he went to work for Smiths Weekly. He'd already spent some years at the Sydney Sun, as I've mentioned, with which he retained an association throughout his life, it being subsumed by Fairfax Holdings in the 1950s into what became the Sun Herald. He'd also spent a brief period in Melbourne in 1924-25, working for the Melbourne Herald and for the short-lived Punch magazine, though neither of these publications really serviced him as a writer, and when Punch folds in December 1925, he returns to Sydney. Things might have seemed a bit bleak for him at this point, his friend Lynch's death having just been around the corner, but in 1927, Smith's Weekly comes along. Uh, an independent tabloid started in 1919 after the war, a magazine-style publication full of humour, satire, and uh, no shortage of vulgarity there either. Let us not forget that this was the newspaper for ex-diggers, for men that had returned to Sydney following the war to a fairly underwhelming welcome and who were struggling to re-enter the day-to-day humdrum of everyday life. 
some of them may well have been detained at the quarantine station we talked about last episode owing to the fear that they they were carrying deadly Spanish influenza. The whole way in which Smith's Weekly didn't seem to take itself overly seriously, the way it poked fun at the establishment, appealed very strongly to Slessor, a man who held sacrifices made by his fellow countrymen during the war uh, really in the highest regard. Uh, he would soon find himself editing the publication. It hadn't been for the outbreak of the Second World War, I think he would have continued writing for it right up until it wrapped in 1950. Let's touch on an area of Slessor's life which receives the least amount of attention. He spent four years as a war correspondent. Yes, I did find it quite interesting when I was preparing my notes for this podcast that much of what we know and what has been written about Slessor concerns his time in Sydney and the times he spent cutting his academic and artistic teeth in Chatswood, in North Sydney, at the offices of the Sydney Sun and the Smiths Weekly, publishing poetry in various forms, publishing an unsuccessful literary journal, Division, in 1923-24, and the exploits of him as his contemporaries in King's Cross. Now, as interesting and integral as these might be to the picture one paints of Slessor, the artist, or Slessor the journalist, uh, what is very easy to miss in the pot of biographies that have been written are lines which read, oh, and he was a war correspondent reporting from such exotic faraway places as Greece, Syria, North Africa, and New Guinea. This would seem pretty interesting to us today, let alone for an age where they had got air travel, where worldwide tourism was, was far more condensed. And yet much, much of Celeste's correspondence and dispatches, which we have perfectly well preserved in the National Archives from this period, went up and published for years. It was only when the author critic Clement Semler put out two volumes in the mid-80s, I think, that we really got a proper look into what Slessor's War was really like. One might assume that his copy, perhaps, wasn't very good, or that it was overly flowery or sentimental, perhaps like his, some of his early poetry, but one finds an incredibly gripping and moving account of these faraway campaigns Australians fought before the threat of Japan came into play. Um, one reviewer I came across even liked into his correspondence to that of Hemingway's accounts of World War One and the Spanish Civil War. And uh, this is high praise indeed, and yet it forms one of the lesser-known aspects of Slessor's life. Reasons we might attribute to the lapse are, of course, numerous. As an official war correspondent, uh, Slessor was, of course, subject to strict censorship for a highly sanitised portrayal of war. And this simply wasn't his forte. If one were to criticise the board that selected him in 1940, it would be to say that he was perhaps far too good a writer for such an assignment. Far too honest, far too independent, far too creative. The press of the day simply couldn't afford to print much of what he wrote, and when it was alleged that some of his reporting was in fact inaccurate, or perhaps more to the point casting a negative light on the Australian military hierarchy, he chose to resign his commission and return to Sydney. This was certainly not a happy time for him by any means. Aside from the horrors of war and from the disharmony that had arisen between him and the Australian commander, Sir Thomas Blamey, uh, there was also the breakup of his marriage to consider, with his first wife dying of cancer shortly afterwards in 1945. Uh, even when he remarried in 51, the state of this union was far from harmonious from what I've read, and it was the breakdown of these personal relationships, far more than anything else, I think, which really served to undermine Slessor's artistic confidence during the latter decades of his life, caused him to retreat from the artistic limelight into a world of negative self-assessment, dissatisfaction. He did have a son, I believe, with his second wife, but when he, he died at age 70, I, I think he died very much alone. As a modernist, Slessor would have been facing a fair bit of criticism from other more traditional schools of Australian poetry. Tell us a little bit about the infamous Urn Malley affair. Yes, well, uh, 
this is a this is somewhat of a diversion from talking about Kenneth Slesser, but I, I nevertheless think it's quite an interesting and lesser known aspect to Sydney's literary history. It does, of course, concern the artistic growth of, of Slesser's poetry, modernist poetry in this country, and it's where two local writers by the names of James Macaulay and Harold Stewart sought to undertake an experiment to prove what they perceived to be the incoherency of the modernist school, taking on the combined pseudonym of an allegedly deceased immigrant auto mechanic whom they chose to christen Ern Malley. Writing to the editor of an established modernist literary newspaper known as Angry Penguins in 1944, under the auspices of Malley's sister, Ethel, uh, Macaulay and Stewart succeeded in getting a series of poems published on the pretext that they were undiscovered masterpieces of the modernist genre. This they deemed to be a successful demonstration of the inherent ridiculousness of the style, but the hoax didn't exactly go according to plan. Even once it was discovered that Ern Malley never in fact existed, uh, the poems that Macaulay and Stewart submitted were still praised by some supporters of modernism. Critics tend to regard them as a satirical portrayal of modernist poetry rather than an outright expose, but nevertheless the whole incident served to undermine the growth of modern poetry in Australia, much to the detriment of artists like Slesser, who were already beginning to cast doubts upon their own abilities. Now, Slesser did remain in the spotlight. Now, let's just jump back quickly to Slesser's life after he resigned his commission as a war journalist. He remained in the spotlight after the war, but his role changed. So looking at the main body of Slesser's poetry, it would quickly become apparent that the majority of his work was published before 1944. Most of it was put out over a 20-year period. In 44, he puts out 100 poems, 1919 to 1939, which contains all the artistic work that he believed was worth preserving for posterity. Contrary to popular myth, he didn't abandon poetry completely after this, but uh, he did fail to write anything which he believed was really worth publishing. I think he would often remark that he was like an extinct volcano, or that if you've got nothing new to say, you should just give up poetry. And this was typical of the cynicism, I think, for which he is remembered by those who knew him in the 50s and 60s. He's been described by one observer as the Dr. Jekyll of poetry and the Mr. Hyde of journalism. And, I mean, if one takes the subtext with which Robert Louis Stevenson wrote that novel in 1886, of the duality of the human character between civilization and chaos, it would seem that chaos seemed to win out in Slesser's mind. He also continues to write, meanwhile, first for The Sun and then The Daily Telegraph, right up until his death. He maintains a sideline as a literary critic, although he very rarely reviewed anything he couldn't praise. Uh, he accepts an Order of the British Empire Award in 1959 for his services to literature and serves for several years on the staff of the Commonwealth Literary Fund. I believe he often defended writers that were discriminated against for their Cold War political views. Some might say that the, the service he rendered to the National Literature Board of Review, meanwhile, was somewhat hypocritical, given his lifelong aversion to censorship but I'd like to think he was attempting to bring down the system from within, really. He was always distinguished for, by his uh, hostility for the establishment, even from his earliest days, and he was always a champion of the people in that sense. Finally, let's move on to the end of his life. You mentioned before that Slesser was quite alone when he passed away. How did he die? Well, Slesser died of a heart attack at the not altogether old age of 70, but life served to wear him down quite badly, I think. One only has to look at his poetry, perhaps, to note his, his obsession with life, the passage of time, death, and remembrance. But not always with negative feeling, I don't think, that he considered these issues. 
He was one of Australia's foremost modernist poets, differentiating himself quite openly and willingly from some of the bush balladry of writers like Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson. And I think he incurred a fair bit of criticism for this. He grew up at a time when the focus was shifting away from the Australian countryside to the cities, where our population has always been concentrated. And it was these cities, particularly Sydney, I think, which inspired him. Uh, his views on the whole represent sort of an apolitical objectivity that, that one really rarely sees in, in literature or much less in journalism. And if there ever was truly a people's poet of Australia, then I would think that it would have been Slessor. Slessor's concern for the individual can be seen in his earliest published poem, which, like his later works, focused on iconic Sydney landmarks. Yes, Sydney Harbour, to my mind, was always his greatest inspiration. Something about that life-giving stretch of water really struck a chord with him. There's certainly other Australian sights and sounds that turn up in his poems and his prose, a good example being in a poem called The Night Ride, written around 1925, in which he draws upon his experiences at a country train station. But he was always first and foremost a city poet. Interestingly, if one takes the harbour of Slessor's day, there are two very important points to consider with regard to its orientation. Firstly, having grown up around the harbour in the 1910s and early 1920s, Slessor would not have been immediately acquainted with the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Uh, that came later in 1932, linking the central business district to the North Shore. The other major icon that was missing from Slessor's Harbour was, of course, the Opera House, which was begun in 1959, but still incomplete by the time the poet died in 1971. Sydney Harbour, therefore, was seen in a slightly different way by Slessor, I think, than it would have been seen by us today. His most famous tribute to the landmark was, of course, Five Bells, published in 1939, and which many of us would have been forced to study for high school English. And it's this piece, in this piece, that Slessor alludes to the death of his friend Joe Lynch, an illustrator who drowned in the harbour in 1927. The story goes that Lynch was travelling on a ferry on his way to a party of some sort, and as a starving bohemian artist, he'd gone to the trouble of loading up the not altogether shallow pockets of his coat with bottles of beer. Uh, now, whether he fell or was compelled to jump from the ferry, for whatever reason, um, he ended up in the water and was never seen nor heard from again. And this is one of the earliest instances of tragedy really rearing its head in Slessor's life, a beginning, perhaps, of his later discontent with his poetry and with the world in general. This is Little Known History of Sydney. I'm Ilana Penderose. And I'm Robert Jones. And we will see you next time.